0: It's Arjun. Uh, Last week's Superspike post focused on our takeaways on the recent high-profile M&A activities taking place in the energy sector. And I I think the note did resonate based on some of the feedback and comments I've gotten. What I wanted to do this week was provide a video so I could use my own voice to kind of go through some of the key questions and additional perspectives that we've gotten uh, since publishing uh, last week's post. And so, you know, a fundamental question is, what is the point uh, and purpose of all this energy M&A. It is clearly to make companies better, the surviving company. But what does that actually mean? To me, it's always meant you're striving for, especially as a large-scale company, but I think it uh, applies across the sector, to be top quartile in through cycle returns on capital. That's a, an important point. The sector overall, over 100 years, is going to be a cost of capital business. But within the ups and downs, Within that cost of capital long-term framework, again, over 30, 50, 100 years, your top quartile companies, double-digit, if not mid-team returns through the ups and downs, they're the kind of companies that can keep pace, if not beat the S&P 500 over long periods of time. It's how names like Exxon and Shell, going back to the early 1900s, dominated uh, between 1910 and 2010. Top quartile profitability is absolutely the goal, and that's going to be the goal ultimately for why you do M&A. It is also to have lower volatility, so you have higher returns, even with all the ups and downs of commodity prices, which are inevitable, um, your overall volatility is going to be lower. And I would just say it's not necessarily about buying lower volatility businesses. Uh, most e assets are inherently going to have quite a bit of um, sensitivity to all prices, but if you're buying at the low end of the cost curve, uh, the future cost curve, and you have better profitability through those ups and downs, you're actually going to be a more resilient business, which is the final point, which is resiliency at the trough. I think it's critical for any top quartile company to actually show they will be top quartile if they can generate cost of capital return at the trough, not mid-cycle, but the trough. And in the worst case, if it's a severe downturn, it at least break even. It is never okay to lose money. And so when you're engaging in an M&A, how does it impact these types of metrics on a long-term basis? Are you on a path to top quartile returns on capital, lower volatility through the cycle, and ultimately being resilient at the trough? Certainly for Exxon and Chevron, I think it's safe to say, and I think this is going to be true for a lot of the, the upcoming and any future M&A, is you're trying to extend the duration by which you can generate advantage returns. So you have a certain portfolio, oil and gas is inherently a depleting business. And you're trying to extend that period where you can generate advanced returns by investing in uh, and adding to inventory of, of low cost resources. Clearly, Permian, based in the Midland Basin, Pioneer's position there, I think qualifies as low cost. And of course, Offshore Gion and Hess, another sort of ultimate sort of big company, low cost type resource. Size and scale certainly matter. Um, in a world where there is a lot of energy transition uncertainty, there is uncertainty in terms of near term recession. Uh, There are scope one and scope two obligations that are going to be expensive as time goes on for all industries, by the way, not just oil and gas business. And when there's this kind of Glasgow financial alliance for net zero and this pressure on capital markets and insurance access and availability, a real long-term threat, this is where getting bigger, but still getting better size and scale can matter. Um, I I will say, though, that there's always a dynamism that comes from the smaller companies that is often lacking especially as companies become super caps. And what is missing from the current wave of M&A and activity in the traditional energy sector is actually new companies. There's not been a lot of IPO activity. There's not been new ideas to do this type of exploration or this type of new business model. You see it actually in new energies. There's a ton of new companies, both publicly traded and privately owned. Um, some might have challenging business models. Some might be future home runs. That type of dynamism, we are seeing in new energies. We, it has not yet come back to traditional energy. It is something that is missing from uh, this M and A wave and from this sort of upcycle we're going through. What are some of the hot takes out there that I think I might push back on? I, I think the first would be that this recent spate of M and A, again, especially from Exxon and Chevron to buy the respective companies, that this is anything about the timing of peak oil demand or represents some notion of a demand view. Look. I think it is likely that if you're spending 60 or $53 billion buying something, you're probably not super bearish. <laughs> you could be pragmatic about that. But these are the types of assets. They're low cost in nature. They're sizable. These are big company assets that are being bought, folded into the larger enterprise that would be resilient in that scenario where demand does plateau and go down. And it actually could be true that in a scenario where plateau or peak demand materializes, it's not my view. I I think you all know I'm much more optimistic on long-term oil demand growth potential. But if I'm wrong about that, and we do have a plateau or peak demand, it's much more likely that supply disappears faster than does demand. And I think in that type of downside scenario, let's call it, for demand, um, these are exactly the type of assets I think one would want to own. So I don't come to the conclusion that you have to be an oil demand bull. You might be, they might be, but you don't have to be. If we do have a scenario where oil demand does continue to go out as as I'd expect, well, then it is the, not just the production that we know is going to come from these assets, but the long-term improvements in recovery rates, exploration, exploitation, all these kind of things that all companies do well, extending that resource life beyond what we know today, these are the kind of mega assets that are going to be parts of these companies for many, many, many decades to come. These are big company oil fields that they are buying. I think the other big pushback is, does this mean that uh, either these companies or someone else is bearish about new energies or that somehow that... Does, I don't think it says anything bullish or bearish about new energies. A lot of the companies in that sector is going through a correction right now. Higher interest rates, some capex inflation, some recognition that some of the business models weren't quite right, or that growth was, people were too exuberant about it. Whatever it is, they're going through correction period. But I again do not conclude that buying Pioneer or Hess means you're you're automatically bearish. New energies, you might be. Um, there is nothing that has happened ever preclude any company from pursuing new energies that makes sense. You may actually have a slightly stronger balance sheet now, a little more free cash to do something. Again, I think those things should be evaluated on their own merits. There's such a desire by everybody, both in the oil demand comment and this new energies comments, to pit forms of energy against each other. You're either for or against traditional energy, or you're for or against new energies. It is not zero sum. We actually need all of it if we're going to satisfy the energy needs of not just the lucky 1 billion of us, but the other 7 billion people on Earth who are going to aspire to a better lifestyle. Again, the final point of pushback is that this is definitively a bullish price bet. Um, if we're being pragmatists, I, I think it is likely that if you're evaluating Pioneer or Hess, you're going to look at supply-demand balances. You, you know, you're going to take you, you might view it as an upside that all prices could do a little bit better this decade, but these are low-cost resources. Both deals were done all stock. Um, so you it's not the classic all-price bullish bet where you're leveraging up. Uh, and you're counting on a significantly higher oil price. And again, for both of these types of properties, I think there is going to be a bet that resource life will get extended to improve recovery rates, expiration, and so forth. Uh, and it is about staying at the low end of the cost curve. So again, I'm going to push back that this requires a bullish bet. One one comment I got was, well, it's at least pro-cyclical. Um, perhaps. You know, we, we are off trough. I don't think we're at peak. Uh, you can argue that it's a pro-cyclical in that sense. So what are the risks that exist with uh, some of this recent M&A? And I think the biggest risk always will be some misunderstanding of the underlying resource. I mean, it's it's the classic risk you make when you buy an asset. Do you really know it? I think in the case of the Permian Basin, you would think Exxon's been there and should know it. Um, And certainly Pioneer knows it very well. On the other hand, um, things can always go in a different direction. Similar thing with Guiana, it looks pretty well-defined. But there's always a question of sort of um, the resource is always going to be a risk in these kind of things. A point that often doesn't get discussed as much as it probably should. I think this is especially true in the investor world, the institutional investor world that I used to deal with is the cultural integration. And so on the one hand, you could say you've got giant companies absorbing, at least in this case, large, but smaller than they are types of companies. It's a real opportunity if you do it right to inject some fresh blood into your company. There clearly are some great people. At both Pioneer and Hess, or these companies wouldn't be getting sold for fifty-three and sixty billion dollars. Uh, and the question is: If you're Exxon, if you're Chevron, or if you're any other large company doing these kind of deals, how can you evaluate who you are? How do you keep the best people? How do you take whatever best practices they bring to the table? There's no doubt Pioneer's done a lot of really good things in the Permian. What lessons can Exxon take from that? What are the things Exxon brings to the table? And again, a similar thing. Uh, with, with Hess, um, where, what are the areas of strength? Who are the people you want to keep? It is a real opportunity. I think when you have a more of a merger of equals, that's when you probably have a bigger risk of could the cultures clash and so forth. That's probably less the case here, but it's always an opportunity to add good people. And it's impaired upon not just these two companies, but any acquiring company to figure that out as fast as you can and do what you can to keep the best people and to figure out um, how you can get best practices between the, the two companies. The, the final risk would be, it's always an opportunity cost to do a deal. We're not at the trough. Um, you know, I personally think the outlook for oil and natural gas is pretty constructive, but it is a volatile time. We got war, we got inflation, we got recession concerns in the US, Europe, and China. And even if some of those recession concerns seem to keep getting pushed to the right, um, you're always going to ask, would there have been a better time? And that that's that's a, that's a tough one. Is there something else that could come up uh, 3, 6, 12 months from now possible? But again, these are both all stock deals. Uh, I'm not sure there's anything in here that would preclude any of these companies from doing something else down the road. Um, but opportunity cost, I think, is, is just one of those risks worth mentioning. N- another question is, is bigger better? Um, is everyone going to have to be a super major or at least a really large company? And I'll just say not necessarily. Um, there are some advantages to size and scale. It's especially relevant in this messy energy transition era where there is an uncertainty demand. There are recession concerns and the scope one, scope two, Glasgow Financial Alliance for net zero. There are lots of reasons for why uh, scale and scope and size are relevant and investor interest and liquidity and S&P weightings and all these kinds of things. Um, it can certainly feel that bigger um, at least is not bad and maybe better. And certainly for large scale, full field development. This is something big companies classically do really well. It it is something that specifically Exxon and Chevron have a history of doing and generally doing well, or they wouldn't have been great companies over the last 100 plus years. And so whether it's the Permian, whether it's Guyana, which Exxon's obviously also involved in, these are big classic big company projects. So credit to Hess for uh, being there as part of the discovery uh, and helping get the initial developments off the ground. Um, You know, again, you think about large scale developments, these are tend to be big company kind of things. But I will say that niche unique strategies are always in demand. Um, That is something, um, whether it's an example might be Tosco, going back to the 90s, buying refineries for pennies on the dollar and having a very successful kind of home run stock strategy out of that. That's not the kind of thing that you think of a big company, I mean, could they do it perhaps technically? but not quite uh, in their culture. And so whatever that unique business model and it's often going into a newer area, doing something a little different, it is always an m and I will say that it is something that feels like it's lacking today. The kind of uniqueness of that kind of smidcap strategy um, is a little bit lacking today and something that I think we could use more of. The last area we wanted to touch upon is what does make sense for smidcap EMPs from an m a perspective? And first point is, In some respects, it is actually the same metrics in terms of through-cycle returns, volatility, resilience that matters. You have to be a good company. The timing of when you see returns in this mid-cap stock could be different if it's a new area they're growing into or what have you. But there's still the goal that you're going to have to be profitable, at least eventually, to be resilient and so forth. The strategies are what may vary. Uh, the same kind of strategies that a large company uses, which is often often optimizing large resource development, capital allocation, cost cutting, all these types of strategies that are often thought of as big companies. For a small company, it can be a more unique niche strategy. I, I think the example I do like to use is the Tosco buying refineries for pennies on the dollar. It's the kind of thing that was appropriate for a small cap company that had a very differentiated kind of CEO and culture. Probably a large company could have done it, but not quite in the DNA to have such a differentiated strategy. It's just one example. For SMIDCap upstream companies, uh, we might offer some examples of if you have a long-lived asset, can it be matched up with perhaps a maturing shale play that has lots of free cash flow? That's one example. Another example. If you're a shale peer play, is there basin or geographic diversification you should be considering? And if so, how? With whom? Where? Uh, what's the best way to go about these things? Another example, is there something actually in new energies? It may be a little hard to see at this moment, especially as things are coming crashing down. But hey, maybe because things are coming crashing down in new energies, there may be something in there. It's not have to be acquisition, but a different type of approach or business model, unique niche. And ultimately, the goal is, if you're not a super cap company, how can you be differentiated? It's one thing to be a large company where There's going to be a certain size and diversification and returns focus and balance sheet health, uh, dividend approach and so forth. For small companies, there should be a broader spectrum of things that are out there in terms of strategy and profile. That's not always the case today, especially as the world became shale, shale, shale. We went away from a lot of different models to almost a kind of a a unimodel, if you will. We need some differentiation. There is an opportunity to create unique investment vehicles. And if you do well, if you have the returns ultimately or the growth or whatever it is, I think that is the kind of thing that the market will reward. So I'd like to end this video on a personal note. And I know many of you, um, at least some of you noted that you appreciated the, the story about John Hess, an absolute class act, but also expressed surprise that at Goldman Sachs, as a young and newer research analyst, that I was somehow able to downgrade an investment banking client shares to sell. Again, I, I told the story, it never dawned on me that that should matter. We're just trying to always try to just make the calls that I thought were, were right for uh, my institutional investor clients, which was my focus. And while I know people don't always believe it, we actually had a, a pretty rigorous uh, Chinese wall that separated these things. And that was true even in the days pre-Spitzer, when research analysts were able to, to speak with bankers and so forth. And at least to the point of today's uh, personal note, which is some of the best advice I got was actually during the interview process at Goldman Sachs, and it came from an investment banker. So I was a uh, energy buy-side analyst at J.P. Morgan Investment Management. It was you know an excellent job. It certainly gave me a lot of confidence. And one of my questions to all the bankers I met with, but, but this one in particular was, well, if I come to Goldman Sachs and come to the sell side aren't I going to have to always just be positive on a bunch of companies and especially our investment banking clients and, you know, stocks go up and down, the sector goes up and down and not every one of our investment banking clients will we always favor. And I'm concerned. I wanted the freedom to write and say what I want. And he's like, Whoa, 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 whoa stop right there. And, and aside from sort of the legal speech about Chinese walls and so forth, a couple of points that I'm going to paraphrase on. He's like, as a banker, uh, I benefit from you being a credible analyst, not a permable. Um, being always bullish, but not being credible. That doesn't help anyone. The second thing is if you do feel the need to critique a company, if you do think there's some issues, all it suggests is that you say, what are the two or three things they could actually do to get better or change your mind? I thought that was. I've actually still tried to live to that advice today. And to keep the banker nameless. He's not asking to be named in a what is ultimately a YouTube and Veridon and Super Spike Post kind of video, Substack video. Um, but it is just some of the best advice I got. J- I've ever gotten. Don't just be a critic. Offer tangible solutions. And it is unfortunate. And I really do miss that after the Spitzer settlements that the Wall Street banks went through, suddenly we had to have chaperones and we couldn't easily talk to the bankers. I loved working with the and kind of getting to know and interacting with the investment bankers at Goldman Sachs. Um, They had different perspectives than I did. I learned a lot from it. And most importantly, I always thought my investor clients who were my clients, uh, the institutional investors out there, that they benefited from me having those types of interactions so that I could better understand what was going through companies and the industry and so forth. So anyway, best advice I ever got came from a Goldman Sachs investment banker. Thank you.